Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Here we are with another exciting instalment to our debut Spotlight series, where we shine a light on our favourite new authors and their debut work. Today we are chatting to the amazing Imogen Crimp about their incredible debut novel, a very nice girl. Imogen Crimp is a writer from London. She studied English at Cambridge, followed by an MA in Contemporary Literature at UCL, where she specialised in female modernist writers. After university, she initially trained to be an opera singer at a London conservatoire before committing to her calling as a writer and spoiling us all with this fantastic debut novel. Imogen, welcome to Opera Bookends. Thank you for inviting me. So we always like to start our interviews by putting you on the spot and asking you, what are you currently reading? Okay, so I'm currently reading um, The Blackwater Lightship um, by Colm Hobean. I think I've said his name right. Um, I have actually just this very week had my um, Irish citizenship confirmed, courtesy of my Irish grandmother, I know. (laughs) So I'm doing a little like Irish Irish writer session. Um, I've actually read anything by him before and I'm absolutely loving it I'm about halfway through um it's about a woman called Helen who lives in Dublin uh she's married she's got two children and at the beginning of the novel um she finds out that her brother is dying of AIDS and he hasn't told anyone in the family that he's got AIDS um and so then she has to go um and tell her grandmother and her mother that he's ill and you kind of gradually discover is that the family are estranged from each other so it's it's just it's absolutely wonderful it's um his writing is just this beautifully spare but has so much kind of emotional depth and richness behind it and he just writes wonderfully about complexities of family relationships um and family secrets um so I'd really really recommend it also that recommend sounds the like... male author which is not I don't tend to read that many men so not like on yeah, true. but like <laughs> it turns out I don't tend to so yeah male Irish writer love that that sounds like yeah. catnip for us doesn't it Lud? it does indeed yeah <laughs> it's written down it's written down although am I mentally stable enough to read that book right now I don't know I, I feel like that's a book that'd make me cry it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite devastating but it's oh, kind of beautifully no. understated as well yeah it's really really brilliant I think oh I love that so as this is a debut series I I'm just so excited that we've managed to get you on for this. We've already told you that we were obsessed with this book, but this is a debut series and we are both performers. Um, so this was quite a relatable reading experience for us, I would say. And your journey into training as a singer and then your journey into writing is obviously quite different to a lot of writers that we've spoken to. So could you tell us more about the journey into getting your debut published and and what that was like kind of moving away from training to be a singer yeah I mean so in a way like training to be a singer was a little bit of a wild card for me to be honest (laughs) Um, so I'd actually I'd always always wanted to be a writer like ever since I was little I was completely obsessed with writing and that was absolutely my plan for what I was going to do and then when I went to university I so like you said I did did English at Cambridge arrived at university was like instantly totally thrown by this like madly pressurized environment and all of these people around me who like you know 
know, already had novels published and like that kind of thing. <laughs> I, I'd like done my, you know, like my little bits of like short story writing and stuff. And I like really didn't, didn't feel that confident about it. And I basically just stopped writing completely at that point. But I also did like a lot of music um, and sang in the choir there. So I, yeah, sometime around the end of my time at university, I, I sort of had this idea. I was like, I'm going to be an opera singer. Even though I didn't, like, I didn't really, I loved singing, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't really a performer in that sense. You know, like I wasn't really a stage performer. So it was potentially a bit of a strange decision, but I, I went to music college a couple of years after university. Um, and just again, like instantly, kind of like my experience at university, just found it such an overwhelming experience, like mm. being in that very, very competitive environment with a lot of people who'd done singing for a lot longer than me and studied it at undergrad. And actually very quickly at university, and uh, sorry, at music college, and this really fed into my writing of the book, I started to experience really bad stage fright. So after about, I don't know, like a term at music college, I found just performing the most crippling, terrifying thing and actually like started losing parts of my range and that kind of thing so yeah I I tried to kind of battle on for a little while but it became clear quite quickly that I was like not ever going to make it as a singer because I just couldn't get past that you know and it was such a terrifying experience so yeah well after I left after I left college um, I was meant to stay for a couple of years and I ended up leaving after a year and after I left I really just had absolutely no idea what I was going to do and that's when I went back and studied did a master's because I kind of remembered even though I'd actually basically stopped reading as well completely and I remember that the, that the kind of like the last time I'd really connected to something was like literature and writing and reading. So I went back to do a master's kind of with the vague idea that I might eventually become an academic. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to reconnect to that thing that I loved. Um, but while I was doing it, I started writing and I really started writing. I mean, without any thought that I was going to be published or any thought that what I was writing was a kind of, you know, like a coherent piece in any way. I was just sort of writing bits for fun. And and I ended up writing a whole book that then didn't get published, that I sort of tried to get published, had a bit of interest in, it didn't quite work out, feeling really miserable by this point. <laughs> I'd like, you know, done one creative career I'd like failed at. Then I was trying another one. I was like failing at that. And I was like, oh my God, what am I doing for my life? I'm like headed. <laughs> I nearly like I've like just totally wasted this past decade and then I thought no I'll give it I'll give it one more shot and that's when I started writing this book and when I write, wrote it I was working I was teaching full-time in the school and I decided to like give it a proper real shot so I applied to do um a course at Curtis Brown um it's like a creative writing school I got onto a six-month writing course there um and that's where I wrote the kind of the majority of the novel and at the end of that course my agent Emma Finn um, we were allowed to kind of make general submissions to Curtis Brown and CNW which is the agency, agency that I'm with now um, and she approached me and said that she wanted to work on the rest of the book with me so mm-hmm. yeah and then then I kind of finished it over the next few months and once I'd had the once I had the final draft um, we actually ended up submitting it to publishers really very quickly you know within a few weeks and yeah got quite an immediate response so it was all, it, it was strange it went from like you know years and years and absolutely nothing happened to suddenly like everything happened at once um, which is very exciting it was two weeks before lockdown that this happened the first lockdown wow it was totally like surreal bizarre experience goodness that's amazing I think it's it's quite a what we found with interviewing a lot a lot more debut authors is that that that's not an uncommon situation 
mm-hmm. to have kind of years out in the desert kind of just writing for yourself and writing as much as you can and and even writing like you said a, a full novel and not it not going anywhere and yet somehow it's still it's about the not giving up of the situation mm-hmm. and and perseverance which I found fascinating because uh, you know it's very hard I mean as actors me and Hannah know it's very hard to keep going after the nose yeah so (laughs) but it's totally worth it And I mean, the thing about writing is that like, I think, and I actually think this is where I think having a musical background has kind of been quite helpful for me because, you know, you guys will know as actors, like the rejection when you're a performer is constant. I mean, there was a time in my early 20s where I was getting like five rejection emails a week, you know, every single thing you did, it was like, nope. And you just have to learn to have such a thick skin. Um, But I also like, I think that something else that you learn from performing and from music is that you really have to practice to be good at something. And I think that if you, that writing, it's kind of easy to think that because you can write sentences, then you can write a novel. And actually those years that you spend trying to write and failing to write, you're actually, what you're doing is teaching yourself how to write. It's not, you know, it's it's not a process that just comes naturally, I don't think, to most people. I'd be very jealous of people that is something that comes naturally to them, but certainly to me, it's something like, <laughs> Those are the type of people we can just hate. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, What I wanted to ask about was the origins of the title of the novel. The novel is A Very Nice Girl. I think it perfectly sums up the feeling of the book. But could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. So the title of the novel comes from um, Jean Rhys's Voyage in the Dark, a novel written in 1934, which is actually um, what the book is very loosely based on. When I started writing the book, I actually was trying to write a quite kind of straight like modern version of it and then as I carried on writing it I moved very far away from that book and the kind of basic concept of the book is the same as her book and so the phrase a very nice girl comes from a quotation that I use as the epigraph which is where it's like a female character in the book reporting something that a man has said to her and this man has basically said that um, it's more so that things are more expensive than people so it's cheaper to get a girl than it is to get the things that you need to buy for a girl and this the woman gets very very angry with him and he's like no it's true think about it you know you can get a very nice girl for five pounds you can even get a very nice girl for nothing if you know how to go about it but you can't get her clothes for nothing and then this this woman has to accept that he's right this is actually true um the reason I chose that quotation was I think it really summarized some of the ideas that I was was trying to explore in the book about this idea of like money and how money kind of uh plays into uh your worth so in that quotation the the term niceness rather than being about like our kind of conception of niceness um, means sort of attractiveness. So uh, like you can buy a sort of attractive girl for, for nothing. But I also liked all of the like different resonances of the, the word nice in the book. So both both that idea of kind of attractiveness, so whether or not you're kind of attractive, attractive enough to attract somebody to you. But also I thought he was really apt for my character who spends basically the entire book trying to sort of second guess what this male character, Max, what he wants from her, the sort of person mm. that she wants to be. And then twisting herself or presenting herself in that light to him. And I really wanted to explore there that, that idea of sort of female niceness, that, that we're kind of socialised to present ourselves in a particular way, to make everybody around us feel comfortable, to fulfil other people's expectations of us. And, you know, I think in my title, I meant there to be a certain irony there, because obviously that's not really niceness. Like, who are we being nice to by doing that? 
that yeah. like totally not ourselves and it's not it's not a sort of productive or genuine way to be but it is that kind of classic conception of a woman that we're always sort of amenable amenable yeah amenable and uh trying to make everyone else feel comfortable rather than ourselves mm. yeah they love to cram us in a box and <laughs> have us be the nice polite good girl yeah <laughs> keep your mouth shut and <laughs> look pretty <laughs> um no I I also really loved the title um and just what you were touching on there about the the themes of money in the book and and how that plays into to worth I thought you know there was a great exploration of of money and of power and desire and how those things sort of like interlink in the book I especially liked uh, Anna's first interaction with Max. I felt like that particularly stood out to me as it sort of sets the the prescient in the book for um, something that is so like unsettling yet like intoxicating about their dynamic. What did you want to highlight in that first interaction with Anna and Max um, about the way that men approach women and I suppose how power dynamics sort of impact male female relationships um you mean in the very first scene of the book yeah 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 well I think that firstly I wanted to highlight the way that Anna throughout that first interaction is constantly second guessing what Max is is expecting her to say to him Mm. so rather than kind of answering him in a way that's genuine she is thinking about presenting herself in a particular in in the way that he's going to like so I had quite a lot of fun in that that first section with him I actually cut a lot of it because it was very self-indulgent in my first (laughs) 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 quite a lot of fun in the first section where he asks her to tell to tell him about herself and then she there's this kind of interior model where she runs through like all of the things about her life that she's not going to tell him because she knows that they're not the sort of things that he's going to find attractive in her, or the sorts of things that that's going to make her into the sort of woman that he wants to be with. So, for example, the things about her kind of quite seedy living situation that he thinks that she thinks that he's just not going to be at all impressed by. So, from that perspective, for her, I wanted to I wanted to highlight that idea of being like really self conscious and really kind of performing to somebody, mm. not not presenting a version of yourself that's genuine but presenting a version of yourself that you think is like the character of this woman who's going to be the sort of woman that this sort of man wants and for him well interesting question (laughs) I think that the first thing that in terms of power I think the way that Max is powerful particularly in the beginning of the book is by being withholding and so I think I wanted to explore that in that opening interaction that even though Max is kind of leading the conversation he doesn't really give anything about himself away at all which is a is a way of exerting power. It's mm-hmm. uh, by making yourself into somebody who's mysterious and unknowable. Um, but I also wanted him to be quite kind of uh, presumptuous. Um, so there are a couple of moments in the opening, like there's a moment right at the very beginning where um, he sort of puts his hand on the back of Anna's chair and turns her around so that he can point out his office block to her. And yeah, I liked that moment because I just thought I could see so many, the sort of thing that so many men have done <laughs> like, to me in the past. Like that kind of just slight intrusion of physical boundaries in a way that's like, it's not not sexual, like it's not, yeah, but but it's still kind of intrusive because it's, mm. it, it, it's exerting power in a way that is quite um, kind of subtle and presumptuous. But also at the end of the end of the chapter, he kind of assumes that she's just going to accept his invitation to dinner. Yeah. So there's there's kind of no no sense from him that she perhaps has her own agency or yeah her own thoughts on the situation that might be different to his. I um did feel a bit attacked when you were talking <laughs> about the internal monologue that we have when we meet a man and we go no can't talk about that no that's not going to appeal to them no. <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel like we've we've all had that internal monologue like when I mean I'm in a very happy relationship now so that's great but definitely when I was dating it was like oh yeah can't can't give away this information can't and you know I I was scared to reveal that I was an actor because I felt like that was like the make or break which is just crazy. And I think you definitely see that in this book, especially when she brings Max to the the party and he's just not impressed at all by all these performers speaking about their experiences. And he's just kind of, she wants him to be charming. She says she wants him to be charming in the way that she knows he can be, but he's just not giving that away. And I think that's definitely like him exerting his power. It's it's just amazing, yeah, how you explored that. I loved it. Absolutely. I feel like as well, talking about like not wanting to reveal like your chosen career, we see in this novel that there are so many different opinions on Anna's chosen creative mm. career. Like everyone's got something to say. I mean, this rings quite true. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, particularly like Max's viewpoint and what I love is that he never outwardly says you've chosen the wrong career path that there is never a point where he says that but every single thing he says somehow makes her feel like that which I thought was so clever and also that that position is is kind of juxtaposed with Max's ambition and ultimately his his sort of like hatred of his own position and job and career what did you want to convey about these careers or about careers through these kind of opposed experiences I think that well one thing that I was really interested in exploring and something that I was thinking about a lot at the time because of you know my own experiences and feeling like I'd failed at two creative careers by this point (laughs) was like the value of art in society and like the interplay between money and art um so I think with Anna I was kind of yeah I was thinking about what it meant or whether it was possible to be creatively free in a world where you need to earn money and where somebody like Max has done the kind of grown-up thing you know in going into the job that means he can like he can earn a good living um which is what we're sort of all expected to do in our society we're expected to be able to we're expected to be able to say that we've you know achieved financial and that's seen as success. Um, so I think with Max's character, that's the thing that he's struggling with. He's gone into the career that means he can earn money, but he feels totally personally unfulfilled. And he knows that the thing that he's doing is, is shallow. Um, and it doesn't, that it doesn't really mean anything. And I kind of, with that interaction between them, I um, wanted there to be some hint of jealousy as well. You know, the idea that Max is actually jealous that Anna is doing something that is, uh, that means that she's going to express herself that's kind of personally fulfilling. And that money is quite a, a good tool for criticizing somebody who's doing that, you know. And I, this is something that I could see, you know, my own within my own friendship group. You know, it's a division start coming around this age where, you know, there are people who've done type of job where they're like suddenly doing really, really well and they're like buying property and they're going on lovely holidays um and then <laughs> and there are the people who are like trying to make it and are still really struggling but they have this thing of like uh, they're doing something they find fulfilling and it's which of those which of those is the kind of better thing to do but in terms of the thing about money and art yeah I think something I was really interested in was when Max starts giving Anna money which I hope is not too much of a spoiler um <laughs> but <laughs> when Max you know he's kind of paying for everything and is sort of managing to live that lifestyle through her relationship with him like that has a knock-on effect on the art that she's creating so I think what I was what I was thinking about was you know if you start 
taking somebody's money, then how does that affect what you're doing? How does that affect your creative freedom? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was writing the novel, I was talking about it to somebody who sent me this cartoon I found quite funny, which was of this woman painting a picture and there's a, a man in the background and she says, she's saying to him, give me, I need your money to create my art. And then her picture is a drawing of the man with like <laughs> devil horns and stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah I thought I thought that was yeah quite funny but quite I love that yeah you definitely see like a a direct correlation in the book between him giving her money and her starting to sort of lose all confidence in her abilities it's like yeah his exertion of power is ultimately taking away hers and yeah you definitely see that play out it's just I'm so obsessed with this book I love it so much and I was I was thinking this morning like Lydia's gonna hate me for saying this but <laughs> adaptation oh for god's sake <laughs> I can see what's on about I I know when something would make a good adaptation and if I had any power whatsoever to adapt something myself this would be a BBC series because I would love to see this it's just yeah it's so good I just I loved it also once again <laughs> two actors you know we're here perfect for some thanks roles. everyone Hello. Hello. <laughs> you gotta hustle <laughs> Um, so another thing that I, I loved in the book was that it was set in London, which I thought was um, really apt for this particular story. So there's a moment near the beginning of the book um, where Anna speaks about stepping off the train and um, she says, I breathed and the city rushed in. And I was curious what your own relationship to London is like and and why you particularly wanted to set the story in London. Um, so I, unlike Anna, I was actually born in London, so I've spent most of my life here. I absolutely love London. Um, <laughs> big, big London fan. When I started writing the book, I was actually living in Switzerland. So I was kind of writing in a way, which maybe sounds weird because I don't know how positive a lot of the stuff in the book is about London. But I was writing from a sort of position of nostalgia because I really miss London. I think something about London that's always really struck me is the kind of juxtapositions in the city um, you know, between like incredibly rich areas and particularly areas like the city where um, Max lives which is like so sterile but also luxurious but also just like slightly like kind of surreal and alienating mm. because empty and then areas of London that are you know much poorer or that are kind of becoming gentrified so there's such a wide variety of different places in London and from that perspective I found it a really useful city for this book because Anna is inhabiting so many different worlds in the book so I really wanted to show that geographically and again I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Anna moved several times in the book and through that I was really thinking about her kind of her journey as a character so like the kind of different places the different locations that she moves to in London are kind of symbolic of the changes that are happening in her life and in that I was also really in- influenced by Jean Reese because Voyage in the Dark her character I mean all of Jean Reese's characters live in the most awful places <laughs> so she, you know, she writes she writes about these kind of isolated young women who are living in you know horrible temporary accommodation with like creepy landlords and stuff which is kind of where I got the creepy the creepy landlords at the beginning of the Love book that. but her character you know constantly are getting kicked out and having to move to different places and she just writes brilliantly about the way that kind of different spaces have like different emotional meanings and you know the idea of like kind of not having a space of your own like really ties into feelings of kind of alienation and um disempowerment um so I, I wanted to bring some of that to the book 
book as well. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, firstly, I need to read this book. Um, that, that you can... as well. Oh, <laughs> music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, you definitely, what I've seen, I mean, I've lived in Manchester for most of my life, but what I've seen from a lot of my actor friends that have uh, moved to London or moved there and then decided they need to move away is how much they come to, if they don't, immediately become successful in their chosen creative career they start to resent the the space that they're inhabiting like they start to resent like the fact that they're having to live in this dingy little flat in London and they see that as like it's their career's fault that they are in this miserable position and I think you definitely get a sense of that with Anna (laughs) which I really loved and you're also on the doorstep of all these like incredible cultural institutions and you're if you're trying to, you know, make it in the opera world and then you've got the opera house just down the road, you're living in like shitty, like shared flat somewhere and, you know, you tormenting got- you. yeah it's very difficult absolutely and I feel like anyone that's been a student and has lived in a a student house or has shared a space with siblings or anything you just just the the amount of daily struggles it creates having to share your space with someone like that it chimes so so true I think it's so you know it really affects that absolutely I think some of my favorite interactions in the book were between uh, Laurie Anna and Matt so the the trio there they have kind of a fractious dynamic and it was fascinating it produced some absolutely brilliant comedic relief in moments But also alongside revealing a different dimension to all of their personalities. Can you tell us more about how and why these characters interact the way they do? Yeah, so Laurie's character, I suppose, um, is a kind of foil to Anna. So she has very, very strong principles about how women should behave. They're not always principles that necessarily uh, don't contradict each other, to use double negative. Um, But she has very, very strong ideas about things. So in that way, she's kind of the anti-Anna who lets herself be very swayed and coloured by other people's opinions. So with Laurie, I really wanted her to be the person who kind of dares to say the things that Anna doesn't dare to say. And Max is the sort of man who kind of finds women like that terrifying. (laughs) And and, um, kind of unappealing, like because she doesn't she doesn't make any effort to change the way that she behaves to kind of fit in with him. So I quite like that idea of him just being sort of totally bamboozled by her. But there is one scene um, later in the novel where the three of them go for a drink, and in that scene, Laurie and Max actually get on really well. And I think and and Anna has the kind of feeling of jealousy about it. And I think in that, what I was really trying to show was actually Laurie's kind of lack of self consciousness and lack of sort of trying to change herself for somebody else actually has quite good results with Max as well you know by that point Anna's sort of slightly losing herself and she doesn't really know who she is anymore whereas Laurie's always very very clear about who she is and very confident about that but with Anna watching them together like that I kind of perhaps wanted that to be a sort of moment of realization perhaps with Anna about the sort Mm. of differences between her and Laurie and you know potentially what Anna's doing to herself in in her interaction with Max. Lydia I have a quote. You've not I do. So Imogen, if you're not familiar with the podcast, we are dead annoying and read quotes of the author's book back to them. So I apologise in advance. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I just thought that I had a quote that was perfect for what Lydia, for Lydia's question for our listeners. And it's the moment I was speaking about earlier at the party. Have I joined this conversation at the wrong time? I said, Max was smiling, but I wasn't sure what his smile meant. Oscar was blank and inscrutable, like a chalkboard wiped clean. He was very pale and thin. He didn't have the energy for facial expression. I was telling them about this guy I slept with once. She said, he asked me if it was arousing to put a tampon in. I couldn't stop laughing. Him imagining women all over the country shoving cotton sticks up their cunts in toilet cubicles overcome with lust. (laughs) I just love that so much. It's so good. Oh my God. Yeah, I was just totally obsessed with that. So when when Lydia said about these moments of comic relief, I was like, I need to get this quote. It was just... (laughs) too good I don't even know is that something that's happened to someone you know because I need to know that information yeah yeah, yeah that's that is something that's happened to someone I know oh no, no. that Anna then says about she had a boyfriend who asked if you stuck sanitary towels to your body yes oh, like I can't I can't remember exactly what said. That, that is something boyfriend once said to me um, <laughs> we were like yeah. oh, my. <laughs> No, I can't. Oh my gosh, that's actually hysterical. How do these brains work? Like they don't. That's the point. <laughs> I can't. I can't cope. So one thing that I really loved and appreciated—if it wasn't already clear—I love the whole book. But there was something that I really appreciated, which was the the visceral insight into the mind of Anna as she went through the motions um, as her character um, on stage. I just thought it was a beautiful representation of becoming a character. And I mean, we're clearly very biased readers because we are performers. So we were like, this is catnip to us. But how, how powerful that experience can be and how it can be so like debilitating, but exhilarating in like equal measure. I, I wanted to know why you wanted to invite that reader into that particular experience of performers. Yeah. I mean, it was so important to me in writing the book. It was, I knew that I absolutely had to find some way of getting across what it actually felt like to perform. And I mean, the reason for that is that for Anna, I mean, performing and singing for Anna is, I mean, it's her vocation, um, but also in the book, it has so many kind of other meanings in terms of like, I see it as being representative kind of her agency. So her kind of taking, her being able to express herself. And like, while that is within the performance context, I think that also has resonances throughout the whole book. It's a journey of one young woman kind of finding her voice as it were. So finding her autonomy, finding her agency. So I really wanted to have those scenes of her kind of us seeing her actually do that, being able Mm. to do that. But how I did that was... uh, another question <laughs> and one that, one that was quite difficult for me to figure out and I tried many many ways of doing those performance scenes I mean initially I tried to do it so that like I literally described because with you know when you're performing as a singer there's just so much stuff going on like you're doing the acting as the character but then you're also you know obviously singing the music and you're doing things physically with the body to produce the sound and I experimented initially kind of trying to do it more technically so like describing sort of what it actually felt like to sing and then that was just kind of boring um, <laughs> and, then, and then I did it um where I kind of did it in the third person so it was almost like you were the audience and I kind of described the experience of her on the stage so I had this ah. 
and then I kind of liked that but I felt it was totally wrong because it was objectifying her and I was trying to do the opposite and I then I was just really stuck and then what I did was I I watched like a video on YouTube of somebody doing uh Manon which is the first one that I um, treated in this way and while I was watching it I just sort of free typed while she was singing to kind of describe the scene and that's sort of it started so that's how I kind of came to this like much looser internal way of thinking about it yeah and that kind of stuck so um, the way that it currently is is simply that it's sort of describing the scene from inside the character's head but in a kind of much uh like looser way grammatically than the rest of the book and it goes into the present tense as well so to give a sense of that like immediacy of performance um but the other reason why it was really important to me to do that and I kind of it's interesting because it, it seems so obvious now looking at it that these stories that I've chosen are all in some way related to what's actually happening in Anna's life. So both Manon and Bohem, which are the two big operas that she does, are about young female characters who are living kind of slightly bohemian lives, who um, have the choice at certain points in the operas to kind of leave behind that life, to go off with richer men. And yeah, they have kind of those themes about like, you know, money and art and mm. um, it to be a young person and love. So yeah, it seems kind of obvious now, but actually when I first struck on those operas, that wasn't quite such an obvious connection to me. I don't know why. But as I was working on those scenes, it became like crashy. I was like, oh, right, here we are. So, <laughs> this is really useful. Um, and so so use those performing scenes to kind of draw out some of the other themes in the novel so Anna is kind of even though it's not explicit it's nowhere near this direct but she's sort of reflecting on the other things that are happening to her with Max while she's um, doing those performing scenes I just I loved those scenes I love them so much and I think I kept annoying Lid by messaging her being like oh my god I'm obsessed and just sending like pictures of pages in the book and she was like okay I'm reading the same (laughs) she's like I'm reading the same book leave me alone (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I have to say I've never in my experience of reading uh, many many a book on actors experiences performance experiences I've never seen it written so well Mm. so accurately that feeling of becoming a character and also still there's a little bit of you I always say it's Mm. like your actor brain shrinks and it goes into the back of your head she's still there but she's making sure you're going in the right place and picking up the right glass and saying the right words but the rest you know you let go and I think it's just so fantastically done it really Mm. is and also I think on the opposite side of that you do write about stage fright with such and I mean now that I know it's come from personal experience I can see why it feels so real do have a little quote (laughs) (laughs) just just you know it's me so I'm gonna obviously you know (laughs) we have to just cope with that but yeah this is the I think one of the most accurate and brilliant representations of of stage fright I've ever read Mm. I took a couple of breaths tried to relax into the familiarity of the practice room this wasn't a frightening scenario we'd spent hours together in this room working on my voice and Angela had heard already everything it could do there was no reason to be scared. She ran me through some exercises. At first it was okay and she made reassuring noises while I sang. Fine, good, this sounds great. But then I started to think about the people walking past the practice room, how bad the soundproofing was because the building was listed and how they could all hear me, imagining ears 
pressed against walls and eyes at window slits to watch. I try to get back inside my body, inside my voice, to study the quiver in the sound, to imagine the breath as an expanse of water in the dark, its surface unrippled. But I couldn't make myself see it. Instead, the images that flickered across my eyelids were random, uncontrolled, irrelevant. Spitalfield's market that evening and him saying, what do you like? The heart on my stomach still there, it wouldn't wash off. The earrings I was wearing, the ones he'd given me, like two lanes of traffic, these images on one side and on the other, the sound, me scrutinising each note as it came out, turning back to look at it to think, why wasn't that right? What was wrong with it? And Angela wasn't saying anything now. She was just looking at me and then there was the thickness to the voice, something between my throat and the sound and I couldn't dislodge it and panic descended on me like a persistent rain. So light at first, you barely notice it until you're soaked and I stopped. I mean, that's just, yes. Like, I have to say, I've never experienced stage fright within itself. However, I used to have a real problem with a quivering voice, a real, real issue with it, where I felt fine. I felt I was fine and my voice betrayed me. Mm. And I'd be like, no, like, no, no, no. And it took me a long time to get that technique down to be able to stop that from happening. And it just, it really resonated with me, that feeling of like, oh my gosh, there are people listening. And the minute you hear it in your own voice, you're like, oh my gosh, and now everyone can hear that I'm upset. Or, and it just snowballs. Um, I mean, stage fright can be so debilitating and yeah. how Anna experiences it and deals with it. It just felt so truthful. I mean, I understand that you've you've had the experience yourself, but why did you want Anna to, to have this experience well I think that the reason the reason why it worked kind of narratively in the book was I wanted her to start as somebody who was kind of reasonably confident in her singing so who saw herself as having a talent who saw herself as having a voice and then to have that gradually be unpicked over the course of the book through the relationship with Max really and through the idea of that if you start to listen to what other people think about your career and what you're doing that kind of undermine your sense of self I think the thing about stage fright and like I think I, I touched on it in that extract is that um, it happens when you sort of separate yourself into two people and when you have the person who is kind of doing the singing and then you have the person who is standing outside and judging. And if you're a singer, once you've done that, you've really had it because you have to be thinking forwards. So you can't be looking and, you know, if you're scrutinising a sound that you've already made, then you're already too late because you're already behind yeah. So, yeah, I think my description of stage fright in the book, my own experience of stage fright was that thing of being split in two and having the kind of performing side and then the judging side and then them not not being able to go together, not being able to get rid of the judging side to be the pure existing animal performing side, which, as you, I'm sure you know from, from performing, it's probably the same with actors, but when it's happening, it, it feels instinctive, it feels natural. Um, you know, it's only when it's going wrong that you're standing outside and yeah. at what you're doing. And so I suppose the stage fright in the book kind of mirrors the relationship with Max because even though Anna's kind of always a always a self-conscious person always somebody's kind of trying to change herself to fit in with what, some, what other people want her to be that becomes more extreme as the book continues so she splits more and more into these two different people the kind of person living and then the person judging and trying to change and she kind of she has to learn to integrate those two ideas and sort of silence the judging part in order to kind of fully find her voice Love that. that whole scene that you just read led it, uh, it's just like anxiety inducing <laughs> it really is honestly um, <laughs> I 
I don't get stage fright, but I do have, I always say how strange it is. Like it's so hard to describe it to somebody that isn't a performer. Um, the moment before I go on stage, I am so anxious and jittery. I like can't think straight and I'm like, why do I do this? Why do I, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to be in a show again. I'm never like, I'm never acted again. I don't have this experience ever again. Like I'm, I'm out like, and my brain sort of checks out like, what is happening? Uh, why am I putting myself in front of all these people? And then I step out and it's like something else takes over and I'm completely fine, but I just can't seem to shift the mindset that I have directly before I go on stage. And yeah, I just thought like how you did that was just perfect. And yeah, like I said, it was, it was very anxiety-inducing. Uh, um, loss of control and stage fright. You know, I think, mm. I think that's what the really scary thing, well, one of the other really scary things is, a, is the thing of like not being able to stop. You know, you're on stage, you can't stop, but you're totally out of control of what you're doing. And I think yeah. that's, kind of, that's also something that Anna is experiencing in her personal life as well. It's things that are happening completely beyond her control, but she kind of has to carry on with the performance. And that's yeah. a terrifying experience. I um, I remember when I was at uni and we did a performance, like a public performance, and my friend came to watch who was an actor and he's um, a few years older than me. And he's one of those friends that will always be honest with me, even if it like hurts but said in the most like <laughs> loving way and uh he he said to me after the performance he was like so for context I was in the first scene sat on the stage and the lights come up and I'm sat reading this leaflet and uh he was like yeah you were quite nervous at the start weren't you and I was like no it was fine he went Hannah the paper was shaking <laughs> <laughs> No, holding things on stage is always the worst. Horrible. <laughs> so one thing I really wanted to ask you about before we let you go is um, a thing in the book um, that I really loved and I am a sucker for mother-daughter relationships in stories. And I found Anna's dynamic with her mother particularly interesting um, because it was it was quite an odd dynamic. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying that. <laughs> but the sort of the protectiveness um, sort of borders on on controlling. And I think, you know, we've we've talked about control a lot in this book um, and how that sort of shows up in Anna's different relationships. But I think especially with her mother, how did you feel um, the suffocating environment of a childhood home sort of impacts Anna later on in life? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that it impacts her life in a number of ways. I think one of those ways is through performing. So I think that something that I was thinking about with that kind of very stifling, claustrophobic environment of her family life was that Anna is somebody who's kind of desperate to escape and also desperate to kind of find some way of self-expression. There's a line in the book at the end of when she visits her parents where she talks about how she only realised when she starts having when she started having singing lessons as a teenager that previously when she breathed, she never got the air down all the way and then she, she'd been holding her breath at home. So I was really, yeah, I was really thinking with that about the idea of like growing up in that sort of environment with a very anxious, quite controlling mother is a hugely kind of stifling experience for some somebody who, who like you know a young woman who then doesn't learn to you know, find herself or do the things that she wants to do um, or express herself out of fear so yeah I think certainly the kind of performing element the idea that Anna then wants to be on stage and she wants to sing which is such a kind of big expressive loud thing I saw that as the kind of backlash against the mother and yeah and in the kind of the way that her mother now views her life in London 
I think. I mean, I had like so many friends in singing whose parents had similar attitudes to this, you know, the whole, oh, you can become a doctor in that time. You know, why don't you do something sensible? Um, why don't you move back here? <laughs> and like <laughs> in that kind of interaction with her mother, I wanted to short, sort of show that that kind of push, the sort of push pull between mother and daughter is, is still present in Alice's adult life. And that kind of singing is the sort of, yeah, her way of kind of separating herself, I guess, from her mother and from mm-hmm. her family life. But then I think in terms of the relationship with Max, I think there's potentially something comforting in Anna and seeking that kind of dynamic. So in seeking a, another kind of dynamic that borders on controlling, um, you know, perhaps, it, yeah, it's, it's comforting or familiar to her that potentially even the whole person her whole personality trait of kind of trying to mold or change herself to fit other people's expectations it's one that's sort of learned in that relationship with her mom I, I just love a mother-daughter relationship in a story um because I think you know how our parents are just hugely impacts us as people and I think yeah you, you can just see the influences that parents have had on a person and you definitely see that with Anna and I think you also see like elements of like envy that aren't totally explicit but it's like under the surface and I think like I experienced that with my own mom like she made suggestions when I said I was going to be an actor of like more what's the word jobs that are not like more safe stable stable that's the word I'm looking for so more like stable jobs I'd just get like links to like jobs on indeed <laughs> like have you seen this you know they're looking for for graduates of like creative stuff you know you, your drama degree could come in handy for this and I'm like no mom I'm gonna be an actor sorry like <laughs> and it's almost that like I was kind of the bold one that that wanted to have this creative career but when she was younger you know she just went and got a job for the, for the money and you know it was it was an easy thing to do and I think you know you definitely get a sense of that same sort of envy with um just in case my mom listens to this I absolutely love you mom <laughs> This is all said with love, Rolling but she'll probably she'll be nodding along, like, yeah, yeah, that did happen at one point. <laughs> but yeah, you definitely get a sense of of that envy. And yeah, I just thought it was so well written. I was gonna say absolutely, but on the other hand, my mum, who was a very creative person herself and, and was sort of very artistic and stuff, was like, go on, off you go. <laughs> you know, come back when you know it fails. But see. I love that um so I have just realized that we've hit time but we cannot let you go um yet because (laughs) you're like bye I'm leaving this call right now (laughs) but as this is a debut series we are asking um debut authors if they have any recommendations of other debut authors whose books they've enjoyed um so are there any debut authors that you would like our listeners to know of yeah so um Nicole Flattery's first novel Nothing Special is coming out I think in March it's really great it's about so it's set in Andy Warhol's New York in the 60s and it's about I actually didn't know that this was a thing but he basically wrote 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 this novel of um which is just a compilation of tapes of his friends at parties you know people just people talking to each other to each other and he had two high school girls like high school dropouts transcribe the tapes and use hours and hours of tapes and Nicole Flashy basically takes one of those high school girls May and writes this from her perspective so it's essentially about this girl kind of being drawn into this 
really strange decadent world and becoming quite obsessed with it through through the tapes but at, from this outsider perspective um, and it's just such a clever take on kind of our modern cult of celebrity and voyeurism um but told yeah told in this like wonderful 60s um 60s setting love that uh <laughs> <laughs> me and Hannah having... are like being very clandestine we're like do we say yeah but I think it's I think it's okay to say that yeah. that uh Nicole will be joining us in a future episode oh, to talk about <laughs> so uh we're very excited that you've mentioned that because <laughs> absolutely we are so excited about featuring that novel too <laughs> Thank you so much, Imogen, for joining us today. This has been so amazing. Um, Listeners, A Very Nice Girl is out in paperback on the 9th of February. So we will put a link to order in the show notes. But you really, really don't want to miss out on this one. I've already seen plenty of hype on the old Instagram about this book when it came out in hardback. But if you haven't read it already, guess on it, because we just absolutely loved it. It was one of my favourite reads of last year. So, yeah. You need to read it. And Imogen, you are not on social media, are you? No, I'm afraid. No. Okay, well, fair enough. He would want to be. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much. Can can we ask, is there anything um, coming up for you? Can we look forward to any future books or are you not allowed to talk about those yet? Uh, I am writing my second novel at the moment. <gasps> Gorgeous. Music to my ears. Yes! <laughs> so for our listeners that have already read your book you've got that to look forward to thank you <laughs> <laughs> but yeah thank you so much Imogen this has been really wonderful and so yeah uh, listeners please do not forget to rate review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts please go buy this novel if you haven't already read it and um, if you would like to follow us you can do so at a pair of bookends pod on instagram and at a pair of bookends on twitter and tiktok but other than that thank you so much imogen for joining us thank you listeners for listening goodbye goodbye